welcome to a spe another special edition. I seem to do lots of special editions of the Art Business Podcast. This, I think, was an idea I had for the summer because I think many of you will hopefully be lying on beaches or walking around the art galleries of Monte Carlo, as I see in some of your Instagrams. Some of you will be sitting at home sulking Cinderella-like, getting on with your essays but uh, dissertations. But whatever you're doing, it's like summer at the moment. We're in. I'm in London. Um, Henry, are you in London? Yeah. Henry, Henry, and you'll remember both of today's guests, Henry Lydia. Um, I must remember that you're not seeing them because this is only a, this is like a, mainly an audio podcast. I hope one day to put these on YouTube and you'll be able to see us then. But at the moment, you can only hear us. So just to reintroduce you to Henry Lydia, um, who was the subject of an earlier podcast uh, where he spoke a lot about his career uh, in the world of art law. And um, Top Taylor, who, who who we did a kind of <laughs> another rather silly special thing earlier on when we were talking about uh, what he was doing during lockdown. You know, I know Top mainly through his work as a gallerist, uh, where he co-curated the Riflemaker Gallery in Soho, a very important contemporary gallery in the early millennium up until it, it closed down more recently. Um, and but Top had an earlier career and now he's picked that up again um, in the music world. And we you remember that he was recording an, a vinyl album. Uh, during lockdown and we played we he introduced us to some of the tracks on that and we played some of them uh, so uh, you might remember that um, and uh, but the reason that I've invited both Todd and Henry today to give you some as it were summer entertainment if you like but also to learn more about the art world is uh, because like me they are creatures of the you know kind of growing up at the age of a lot of our listeners in the 70s and 80s um, but then kind of maturing into the 90s and the new millennium, if I may put it that way. And so we thought many of you, you know, were only born at the start of the at the end of the old millennium, um, at the start of the new one. And you you probably are bored by parents of our kind of age who talk about the, the good old days. But we thought we'd talk about our memories of the art and musical worlds and um, to a certain extent about the market then and the kind of artists who were cool at that at these periods uh including musicians and and and, and how maybe that compares to today um so but i was going to start by um asking tot and henry to talk about when they first met one another i don't know which of you would like to start the story tot do you want to go ahead and start the story <laughs> if you like um <clears throat> yeah we met i think it was mid 70s i think it was probably 74 i, I think i was actually still at school weirdly enough and I was in a band. I was in a sort of a 1930s pop group was what was what the um, concept of it was. It was like if you had four Fred Astaire's in, in one bag and we played. At, uh, I was from Cambridge and we played at a place called the Graduate Centre in Cambridge, which I don't know if it's still there. Actually, it was, it was known as the Grad Pad anyway. And we construct our concert like it would we, we'd be in uh, Coconut Grove or something in Hollywood you know it's like a Hollywood kind of we had dancing and everything it wasn't just a rock band rock and roll band and Henry came to see us which was lucky for us and he came and uh, spoke to us afterwards and said oh that was very nice um, and was very complimentary <laughs> and allowing and uh, said you know maybe we could do something together that was it I think Henry, what were your memories of that meeting? Well, yeah, uh, it was it was literally a special moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the band. That was the name of the band, David. 
The band was called A Special Moment. Ah, okay. And what was your role with the band? I think well, you may have spoken about I had been, um, I had been involved quite heavily in the music industry after I left university with a law degree and uh, went, went into uh, working with a rock band um, uh, from Newcastle, which was my, my uh, alumni location. And we, we, we all went professional. I needed the money to go to, to study at the bar and to, be, to qualify. And I had a lot of um, good experiences and interesting success uh, with the band. Uh, th that band was called Gin House, as you know, David. And, as, um, and we made an album with George Martin in Abbey Road and we did all sorts of things. But the, the, Todd, you will know this, musical differences between the band uh, and, and including me, uh, we fell apart after we made the album. And so it didn't go on. And I used whatever money I'd saved to get into qualifying at the bar. I then was qualified at the bar, but I relocated to Cambridge because I couldn't afford to live in London. And it was in Cambridge that my reputation taught was such that people kind of knew that I'd been involved with this band because they had success. And so, and I was still interested in young unknown bands, which is what my band had been when I first met them in Newcastle. And so, um, people were saying to me, you should go and see this band or that band or the other band. And I did that. And one of the bands I saw was to pick up with, with Tot's story was, was a special moment in the way that Tot said. And I thought maybe I could help them because I had some experience. That's all. Yeah, and you did. You did help us. Yeah, um, it, it was. I remember because um, it's it's weird. You know, I through working with a lot of um, visual artists and young, particularly young artists, obviously, and you see that they they view time in a specific way, in a particular way. Time is a lot more stretched than it actually is, and yeah. they'll they'll think that a day is a week. So we used to do the same thing. So if something hadn't happened in twenty four hours, if you're in a pop group or a band or you know rock and roll band, whatever you want to call it you kind of tend to panic whereas obviously in normal life if something hasn't happened in 24 hours you have a cup of tea and forget about it everything becomes much more intense and I dealt with so many um, young artists particularly over the years who had a very fraught picture of time you know um did you do this for me did you show them did they come to see this painting um did you find a new studio that i might be hang on a minute it was only two days ago that you asked me to do these things and things like this where in, in a normal working environment it might be a month so i think that what you did was took a lot of that that um worry and space away because you put a, on another gig didn't you which i think was at the art school wasn't it was it ccat i think yeah yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I remember you making a special invite, which was a which was a three page folder. This is just for like a, a, a little rock and roll band in, in East Road, the back streets of Cambridge, you know. Um, maybe so, you yeah. could maybe you could both. Um, I, I think I spoke with Henry more about his background, but maybe if, I think probably listeners would like to know, you know, we every now and then we we we, we read about how hip. Cambridge was in the 1970s 
um, home, you know, to me, to my mind, uh, you know, Pink Floyd were very associated. They were a band that I and I'm sure you two were listening to, you know, it, as as they became gradually bigger. They were <laughs> a Cambridge famous. band, David. They yeah, exactly. They were a Cambridge band. But maybe, maybe Todd, you could say something, or maybe both of you could talk about what the atmosphere was like in Cambridge in the 1970s. I'm sure it was very different for Henry to what it was for me. Um, for, I didn't come from Cambridge. I came from yep. a little village at, just outside of Ely. That's right. Fens. I was in the Fens. We lived in a, We lived on a patch that had been swamp, you know, 50 years before kind of thing. It had been drained. So yep. we had no, no culture there. And mm. I was lucky. I was lucky because I'd gone. I'd managed to not pass the eleven plus, which was the <laughs> thing you had to take to get to secondary school. I'd failed that, but somehow, and I don't really know. I, I was reading quite well, and I used to do the lesson in the hall in the in the school hall in the morning sometimes, even though I was like you know, 13, 14 or something. They asked me to read it, and the head and the the headmaster of the school persuaded the guy at the grammar school to see me even though I'd failed and shouldn't be there and he said you know please you know see him he's not stupid and I got in but after about a year I couldn't take it and I used to hide on the double decker bus under the seats on top when we went past the school that we were supposed to be getting off at and which was it's a 25 mile trip a, a day and that would bring me to Cambridge it'd bring me to East Road in Cambridge and the place that I used to go and hang out um, was um, Kettle's Yard Gallery because that was kind of around the corner and somebody said you could get a free cup of tea, which I did. The curator of Kettle's Yard was Nick, Nick Sorota, by the way, Nicholas Sorota <laughs> as a young student guy at the time. And it was the home of James and Helen Ead, Jim Ead and his wife, Helen, who had built this collection of modern Brit, mod Brit art, basically, but with other things. And it was a sort of a wonderland. And so for about a year, I sat in the small library in the same armchair and read all the art books. And as I say, this was about 1970 um, when I should have been doing my own levels. So I'd, I I'd sort of absorbed it all. And that, so that was the great thing about Cambridge. But actually, music was, I found it a dead loss. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, there wasn't much music activity. Maybe Henry had a lot more music activity than me, but... When, when, when I was there, Todd, um, uh, slightly a couple of years after you've just described 70, mid-74, whatever, mm. what was exciting for me, and I was much older relatively than, than Todd, was that um, um, I, because I had this kind of music industry background that I was kind of known for, even though I was also known for being a young aspiring lawyer who worked in the courts in London, but ho, 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 so that was like a big deal, um, is that the music um, oriented people around the university and the, uh, what was the college that Top referred to, which, which uh, was called CCAT, Cambridge College of Arts and Technology. Kind of, uh, I knew those people and they mentioned things to me. And one of the things that happened was that, uh, Top, uh, uh, you, you may recall this, I don't know whether you were too young, but um, the guy who organized gigs for the main university, was a guy called Stuart Joseph, and he was a kind of graduate student. And he said to me, Henry, 
um, you'd be really interested because I've just bought, booked Lou Reed to play oh, yeah. at the Grad Centre. I remember it, yeah. Do you remember? And so yeah. I said, I, I can't believe it. Lou Reed, Lou Reed was in the Velvet Underground and broken up and all that stuff. And where was Lou Reed? Nobody knew where he was. And there he was coming to Cambridge. And I went along uh, and, you know, you know, other, and it was kind of like, it changed my life because by that time, the Velvet Underground was kind of like the big deal. It was yeah. really a big, big thing. Um, uh, uh, and their music was massive at the time. And there was Lou on his own and uh, with a backing band, which was kind of an English backing band yeah. backing him, which was amazing. So yeah. that was... An, was this 1973? Probably. It could well have been, because, yeah. Because I, I, one of my memories, I went to um, a school in Rochester, a cathedral school in Rochester. I got a scholarship to get in there. A little bit like Tot's story. And um, we, I used to walk past this, uh, you know, again, for for the listeners who might not realise this, the record shop for both of you and for me was was the, the place, you know, you oh, had these independent uh -huh. record stores selling, obviously only vinyl at that time. And in the window, I and I can still see it, there was, there was Ziggy Stardust album by Bowie that had just come out, that beautiful cover. Uh, there was Lou Reed Transformer, which as I understand it, Bowie had, Partly produced or yeah. produced, and yeah. there were there was um, what else came out that year? Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd. Um, you know, I think that was out there. One of the Roxy Magic. Music. Yeah, yeah, all of that. And there was it was it seemed to be an amazing year, nineteen seventy three. And that's probably when you actually when Lou Reed came over. Did he do songs off Transformer? I, I, uh, I he did Velvet Underground. Underground songs. He did Velvet Underground. Probably he did something from Transformer, <laughs> but I think Transformer was being done at the done time. At the, okay. That's yeah. why he was over here with um, Mick Ronson and David Bowie and all that. That's right. I, yeah, I saw him at Edmonton Regal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the same tour. Just, just mentioning Bowie, one of the things top that happened to me was that. Be, uh, at that time, around that time, it was literally this what I know was 72, David, is that, and I, I was there, I just arrived in Cambridge. Um, I saw in the music papers, which we all had to read, it was Melody no Maker and the New Music yeah, exactly. Express, mainly, yeah. That David Bowie was doing a gig over about 40 miles west of Cambridge, in the middle of nowhere, at a place called Hemel Hempstead, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I said to my, the people around me, my circle, I said, we've got to go and see David Bowie. And people were going, oh, David Bowie, what are you talking about? David Bowie is useless. He just <laughs> yeah. had this one-hit single, this one-hit wonder. You know, Space Oddity, Ground Control to Major Tom Lower. I said, no, 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 we must see him because I know him and I met him because my band had played with him <laughs> and he knew me and I knew. So um, we spent a night together, <laughs> an all night gig with Bo, and I, th I said, we've got to go and see him. And they were going, nah. So a couple of people and I drove over to Hebel Hempstead and that was one of the first performances of Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. 
I I saw I saw him on the same tour. I think it was probably the same tour at Chatham Town Hall. <laughs> um, he kept doing all these weird gigs yeah, in the yeah, middle of nowhere. That, that's right. And it I think was, he, he he just brought out Aladdin Sane, but the tour was a Ziggy Stardust tour. And I saw him at Norwich Regal on the same tour as well. <laughs> and and, and uh, I looked the other day online and, and someone had done a bootleg recording, very bad quality, of the gig that I went to. And I just remembered it all when I listened to it. It was incredible. You think things like that. Again, that's quite interesting for our readers. Think, think you know, people had these little tape recorders. They weren't even like little Sonys, but someone had made a recording probably on a on an early cassette model or something. <laughs> this gig and, and you can now get it online our our listeners must <laughs> understand that there was no internet yeah there was nothing at yep. all you had yep. to read music press and buy the bloody music press yes and but you know and buy discs yeah and hang around <laughs> and, and hang around <laughs> everything and when I said to you, people said to me, came to me and said, do you know? And I said to other people, do you know? That's the way it worked. It was word mm -hmm. of mouth. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Jess. And, and Todd's story about sitting in Kettle's Yard, which for our listeners, of course, many of them who've been, any of them who've been to Cambridge or into the art world, they will probably have been to Kettle's Yard. It's still there. Yeah. Um, a very important um, um very important for the story of like modern British art in particular, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, it's because yeah. he because he was the curator at Tate. Yeah, and so he exactly. Nicholas Sorota, you all know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, of course, they may. Some of our students, some of the current students, may not even remember Nicholas Sorota being at Tate because he's been gone a few years now, hasn't he? He has. He was director of Tate. Yeah. He's now. Yeah. Isn't he still chairman of the Arts Council of England? Yeah. Now. I don't know. I mean, James Ede was the was the was the head, the chief curator at Tate, the old Tate, Tate Britain, actually, yeah. before he was at Kettle's Yard. And, yeah, and he yeah. persuaded them to build up um, the reserves of British art, you know, and, and he had had his eye on. I remember Bernard Leach and the Leach pottery and all that. And that was the mm -hmm. first time I ever heard of that. And the first time well, I ever also taught it was his house, Kettle's Yard. Yeah, it was house. Yeah. And he turned his house into what we would now like Sir John Soane's house in London, yeah. David, you know, yeah, it was like instead of being 18th century, it was like mid 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. And he That's opened up his house for people to go and see. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of like he lived in it with his it's kids. A, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And, and the, what I was, what I was getting at was that I remember, you know, again, our, our listeners, imagine what it's like. You can't Google a, an artist if you hear their name and see all their current works and their blogs and everything if they're living artists. You know, you only you could only see the works by go, seeing them physically in galleries or reading about them in books. And where I live, for example, there were no libraries that had any books on anything other than maybe a general history of Western art. But, you know, it was ages before I saw an Andy Warhol exhibition physically, you know, and that, that, that was the only way you'd see these things is by actually get into the shows <laughs> and, and now of course we can do all of this I mean during lockdown a lot of students were doing art history dissertations purely through internet you had to dig David yeah. you had to dig by by digging what you read digging in record stores in the racks going to gigs 
and digging by talking to people who you identified with as being your kind of people, people. which is where the long hair and the hippie <laughs> clothes and all that stuff came in. Because unless you look like your kind of people, nobody would talk to you. Oh, they yep. wouldn't. <laughs> in which case, you wouldn't find out anything about music or art or anything else. I, I think, I think, I don't know, it seems, I may be wrong and I don't mean to be patronising, but it seems to me that, like, our our typical students, uh, I don't think there's such pressure on them to to dress in a particularly certain way or do their hair or read the right books, go to the right gigs. I think it's much more kind of nomadic, maybe, world now and, you know, disp you know, um, whereas, as you say, that you know, you didn't. If you weren't a skinhead or a suedehead, <laughs> this, these were some of the youth cult fashions in the early seventies. Um, you, what were you? You, there were no goths at that point, if I remember rightly. Punk hadn't Reason. come out. Yeah, you were a so, Yeah, you were a great. Yeah, you could be a mod or a rocker. You, we all remember being at school and the the mods drove the. They were the, like the who. Yeah. Contrapenia okay. movie, if students might know that, you know, where they're riding these scooters with Union Jacks on the back, very, very stylish. Um, and the rockers were the kind of like bikers <laughs> wearing leather jackets and so on. And do you remember in the school playground, people come and say, you were a mod or a rocker? And if you yeah. got the wrong answer, they kind of smack you up. <laughs> yeah. So even though you weren't a mod or a rocker, you were kind of <laughs> meant to follow but the... Hours, I would smack you whatever you had. Whatever you had. But I mean, yeah... I remember growing my, the moment I could leave home, you know, remember it was very conservative, all of, probably most of our families were much more conservative than they would generally be today, uh, much more worried about the way we looked, um, you know, so <laughs> when I, at the moment I went off to university in Birmingham, I, I grew my hair, I think I'd already started growing my hair, bought an Afghan coat. <laughs> <laughs> And um, smelt of patchouli oil, and you you meet the right kind of people, <laughs> and then you yeah. go to the right kind of gigs, the kind of music that you liked, etc. And it was very important that as for for one's identity. Whereas now, I think Instagram, the images like a lot of our students are putting out on Instagram, they they're the way they create identities. Hmm. That, that 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 social revolution that happened between I I would say top. I don't know whether you would agree. I think the 60s, I don't want to dwell on the 60s, was started in 62 and ended in 72. Mm -hmm. So it started with the Beatles and the Stones around 62, or even James Bond, around 62, and ended with Ziggy Stardust in 72, and then it became something else. So the 60s were actually that 10 years, they didn't start till 62 and ended in 70. And, and what you're describing, David, is what, what continued to happen, which is that everything about the identity of people and everything we've just been talking about was the so-called underground. Absolutely. Everything was underground. It yes. was the underground movement. It's as if we were all moving around, those of us who were involved and look, had the long hair and the hippie clothes and all that and smoked dope and all that stuff that people did and went to gigs was all done underground. The surface of society was continuing to do what it had done in the 40s and 50s. Okay, yeah. what our parents did yeah. and what the young generation was doing was doing what it was doing, but it was kind of metaphorically underground it was like out of sight out of view 
there was a phrase that you used to use around that time. If something was really good, you'd say, hey, man, that's out of sight. <laughs> Obscene. Off stage. All right. literally, out of, <laughs> literally out of sight. Maybe now's a good moment before we move on to talking more about maybe the, the you know the 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 visual arts uh, 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 bringing those into the mix. Maybe now's a good time for Top to talk about a novel that he wrote, as I understand it, um, in between people coming in and out of his uh, uh, rifle maker gallery in in Soho, his contemporary art gallery, uh, which he he'd opened at the start of the. Uh, New Millennium, um, co-curated with Virginia Dampster, a, a, a Sotheby's Institute alumna, by the way, um, and um, they, 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 that was an amazing gallery. I, I remember going there many times. It, it just had so many great shows. And David, yeah, she was a former student of mine. Of yours, there you go. Yeah, yeah she was. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and it was really, it was a cool happening place. Um, Tot, I remember. Oh, just a couple of things for the listeners because they, unfortunately, I say. Do you remember Rifle Maker? And of course they don't because they weren't in London then. Um, but it was it was quite a phenomenon. And uh, one one of the things Tot and Virginia did was they 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 used to bring in like classical ballet dancers to do lunchtime gigs and classical yeah. pianists. I remember listening to Rat Maninoff and Beethoven being played on a grand <laughs> piano. And how the hell they got it into this little early 18th century rifle makers like gun makers place. And so <laughs> I don't know. But... That. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's amazing. And it, it was stunning. And, and, and there were big names involved. A lot, one of the things that Tot and Virginia did really well, they didn't just introduce like global emerging artists to the London scene. They they also went retro and reintroduced people like Judy Chicago. I remember me, Tot introducing me to her. She's an amazing woman um, who is known to all of our students who studied any kind of particularly feminist art history. They all know Judy Chicago and the dinner yeah. table and so on. Lillian Lynn you know, was another one. Is that yeah. Yeah. Lillian Yoko Ono. Yoko Ono, just a few of the names. Tot start decided he wanted to write a novel and the story of John Knightley, um, I, uh, I, I, I got a copy. Uh, it's amazing as a book because partly I, I don't know whether any of our younger listeners would, in, I think that they really enjoy it. I think it's amazing, particularly anyone interested in like analog and recording studios and the music scene and the art scene, but it gives a, it gives a brilliant picture, I think, of, of the start of the novel. It's quite a long novel. It gives a brilliant picture of what it was like to be in that London, in London rather than Cambridge we're talking about now, uh, in the in the late 60s, early 70s. So Todd, I was just going to ask you maybe just to talk about the plot of the whole novel and then maybe read a paragraph or two from the early stages of the book to give to give listeners an idea about how it's citing what it was like to be in in London in that period. Well, uh, yes, I will, of course. I'll, I'll keep the excerpt very short. <laughs> um, this, is the, this, is the, this is the book, this is the novel, and that, that cover um, is by Bob and Roberta Smith, the, um, what could we call them, activist artists, probably the activist artists of this era. Um, here's one of their, just coincidentally, because I'm moving <laughs> around, this is one of their little paintings. And they use a, a lot of text, a lot of English text, it's a lot of text. I've got yeah. notes on the back as well. Um, and uh, that was important to me. But basically, the, so this is the book. It's not a rock and roll story, by the way. It's not a purely music story. But if somebody asks me what it is, only one thing. It's about creativity. Mm -hmm. So if you are creative and you can't stop yourself 
um, having ideas, if you can't, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter, you, you could be a motorcyclist, you can be a swimmer. It's not, and to me, it's not important that this, this person is a music person, but it's easier for me to write because I know all the ins and outs and the background of it and all that stuff. And I can be funny because I wanted it to be funny more than anything else. But um, for those who may encounter it, it's 960 pages, which is a bit <laughs> worrying. It did take me 14 years to actually write it and get it right. And the reason that it exists in the first place, because there's an art story attached to that, is that in 2002, I think it was, um, uh, Anita Zabladovich came to London and opened an incredible a museum, a sort of personal museum in a way in Prince of Wales Road, opposite where my studio was in Camden. And at that same time, I was a member of Camden, um, uh, the, the, the gallery. Uh, what's, the, what's the gallery called? The, the one that moved, um, the big one. Anyway, the, the public Camden gallery. And they said to me, um, you know, we're going to have an opening because we've, we're, we're moving and we're redoing everything. Could we have a party at your studio for, for everybody <laughs> yeah and they said and we've got the ICA is involved and we're there we're working together with them and then I get a call about five minutes later from Alan Yentob who's who's the head of the BBC at the time and says to me could we come up could we come over uh, and say see this place that you've got which apparently is in between these three places these three venues that are having this opening night sort of party thing and we did and then they said to me um BBC phoned me up about two weeks later and said, we're making a goodie bag for everybody because it's going to be the well and the good, you know, it's going to be the people who actually contribute to funding things. And have you got anything to put in the goodie bag? Because I noticed at your place, you've got a lot of records and you make records. And I had made a little test book of, of this. And that little test book was this. That's the test. That's my test book of, of this. And I'd made 200 copies. So they said they were going to give me 300 goodie bags and they dropped them off. And, you know, the Tate had put Tate catalog and some invites in there. Um, the, the Camden Gallery had put this in, the Zabladovich Gallery and everything else. Uh, everybody was involved. There was a Francis Bacon print or, you know, lithographic thing. And um, about two weeks later, after we had the party, and this just happened to be in, I had 62 phone calls from people saying what the hell was that book in that bag we loved it you know first time it's ever ever happened by the way I've never had a song that that happened to or a record <laughs> ever ever and just where's the rest of it it sort of stops so I thought wow I, I have got to finish it but but because the end of the first chapter was page 200 it did take another you know 760 pages to to get through it it tells the story of a young man a young songwriter um, it's not me, by the way, it has nothing to do with me whatsoever. Everybody always says when you write something, you know, is that you? You go, no, 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 it's not me. I can't, I am capable of thinking in fiction, you know. Um, and so he is 15 years older than me, basically. So he's in a different world. But it tells the story of all the things that he has to go through to succeed. And he does succeed at a young age. But then he has a blitz out. He has blast out. He has the usual problems, you know and his record label dumps him and everybody stops coming to the gigs and all that. And so we have a 25 year gap and then we meet him again in 2004. We last saw him in 1970 or whatever. So I thought that was very interesting because I thought that gives me 
uh, an opportunity in the follow-up book, which I'm writing at the moment, <laughs> to fill in that really long gap. What the hell happened? And he remakes himself as a gardener. And so we start to think about the creativity that we've been discussing in a mu musician or a songwriter in the same terms as a gardener. I, I know lots of gardeners and I come from an agricultural background, so I know how deeply you know it's not just you don't just put the potato in the ground and it grows seriously there's a lot of things you've got to, you've got to go and do with that potato or that carrot you know unglamorous vegetables that people might go what what, what on earth are you talking about it's not it's creative it's very very creative so i wanted to remake him in that second part of the book as as um as a gardener and then we can see how gardeners are a bit uh, creative and then I wrote a timeline which again is 70 pages I'm afraid at the end of all the creative people I could think about from Jesus Christ to Vidal Sassoon um, everybody in this timeline the timeline took two and a half years to write so it, this is a pretty nutty um, uh, adventure that I went on um, I shall I'll I'll pick a little bit but you'll have to give me a minute so perhaps perhaps Henry could uh, answer a question or you can um, ask something else for a minute if you wouldn't mind because I've it's got not... a I'm just going to find I'm only going to read a page no, but I'm going to find a, a nice Henry, page Henry I was just coming back to that your 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 suggestion about 62 to 72 and I would agree with that I think because one of the big things that happened you might remember and correct me if I'm wrong is that I think from 73 onwards something strange ha started happening to the bands we've been following they moved from being relatively underground playing places like Chatham Town Hall or Hemel Hempstead to to suddenly be a mega you know, Bowie's suddenly moving off to America. They're suddenly creating, and it, it all seemed to stem from different albums. So suddenly they created an album that I remember at the time, me and my friends referring to, oh, they've sold out, they've gone commercial. And it, it happened with Pink Floyd with Dark Side of the Moon, however great an album that was, that was the moment when suddenly all of my school friends, not just the select group that we that I used to listen to the earlier albums like Amagama and so on with, suddenly all of my friends had Dark Side of the Moon and everybody in the country had Dark Side of the Moon, and then everyone in the world had it. And it happened, I think, with Genesis, another band you might remember, they, they suddenly brought out Selling England by the Pound, introduced this drummer called Phil Collins, who then took over the band and Pete Gabriel you know, the creative centre, in my opinion, kind of left. And that was another kind of what I saw as a commercial movie. It was all happening around about that 73, 74 time. And then, of course, 75, it's all swept away by punk. I don't know, Henry, whether your memories of that, of what was going on and what happened to you when punk came along. Um, yeah, it was, <laughs> uh, it was very, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I was just thinking, um, to asking myself what happened. It, it, what happened was not only did Bowie happen and not only did Roxy music happen, uh, but we entered a phase which is now, it's a bit like looking in the rear view mirror. It's now called the glam rock period yeah. before punk, right? Yeah. With people like Mark Boland. Yes. Um, and T-Rex and so on. And um, what, what, I think was happening was that, yeah, that was in kind of like pop music in the charts. But also, I think that, that we, we owe a lot to the fact of Woodstock in 69, which was immense. 
in, in sociological terms, in, uh, in music terms, and it, it, it showed, it demonstrated to everybody on both sides of the pond and around the world that the kind of music that we'd been listening to underground could now be showcased overground and filmed, because it was, and you can have hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. What is it that Joni Mitchell says? Uh, by the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that was absolutely, there was Woodstock, there was then followed by the Olive White Festival, mm -hmm. and, and the beginning of um, Glastonbury Festival and other festivals, both in the States and here. And what was happening was a lot of the bands that, that you were just referring to moved themselves with the technology that became available, the amplifiers and the speakers became more and more sophisticated and could throw out massive sounds. They started to move into what became stereo rock. Mm. Mm. And the, the Rolling Stones played at Altamount, you know, big stadiums, you know, whatever it may be. So music kind of moved from underground to kind of overground and became popular and became accessible in, in big audiences, in big stadia, like the Beatles played at Shea Stadium in 66, which was a baseball stadium. But then, then everyone in the music industry started going around saying, where can we play? At Wembley Stadium or you know, whatever, a soccer stadium or a baseball stadium or whatever it may be. So it, it shifted gear during the 70s in a way. I, I haven't answered your question about punk, but I can <laughs> mention, uh, I, I can do a tots, tots ready to go, but I'll I'm come back to punk if you want me to because I'll mention Dire Straits. But anyway, over to top. <laughs> okay, so I'm not going to read very much, but I, I will, because it's such a a uh, difficult thing to pick a bit, but I'm going to read the very start, which is where you're introduced to the character as in any, you know, normal novel um, format. And then I'm going to jump, I'm just going to read a page, that's all. Sure. So don't panic. And then I'm going to read another page, which is 30 years later. So we meet this character at an interview with a record label, which is pretty normal. You know, one of the most important things that ever happened to you as a songwriter or somebody in a band or a music act is that you meet someone who's going to release your music. Um, nowadays, you can do that on Spotify yourself, but basically nothing's gonna happen. And you still need that person. So even if you're doing everything yourself, you still need the promoter, you need money actually still, although people say you don't, you really do, you need a lot of money. And that's why all the music publishers at the moment are buying all the acts and buying all the back catalogs, which is the new, new thing to do. So this is a boy in 1966, which is uh, to me, thinking about it and researching it is the sort of pivotal year when the modern world sort of starts. Although the Beatles start in 1961 or two, I think the rest of it starts in 66. So he is going for this epic 
record company record label meeting which we all had to go through it's a very difficult situation you somehow you get an appointment with someone like an artist gets a, a meeting with a gallery that's very very difficult for a visual artist just get that meeting to say hey could i come and see you and bring a couple of my paintings or even worse would you like to come to the studio i mean even worse because them coming to you is one thing but but probably you don't know what to say if you're not going to like it. No one does. Yeah, I've had Just that problem. Thing, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so we would have like one day every three weeks where we'd see everyone for 10 minutes, because frankly, within eight minutes, you know, yeah. if they bring two paintings with them and they put them on the floor and, and, and you gaze at them for three seconds, frankly, you know, and I'm not trying to be glib or anything. You really do. You know, it's like when you meet someone, you, you know, they smile or something and you kind of go, oh, yeah, I can communicate with this person or they don't and you can't and nothing happens. So you don't, you don't need long. But it's that it's that five minutes of your life as a musician in a band or somebody going into a, a, a literary agent to read a couple of pages of their, mm -hmm. of their book, which never happens anymore, which is so crucial and so worrying and so nerve wracking. So here we are, John Knightley, um, dark name kind of thing, but common first name, is going to see his record label, potential record label person in, uh, in, in Soho. So and it is the is the 12th of January, 1966, 10.30 a.m. Situated above You Are Here, London's happeningest boutique, JC Enterprises is one of the many young outfits on the capital's bright new music scene. Their biggest claim to fame being Stanmore Act, The Gloom. High in the charts with their debut 45, Bethnal Green, on EMI's new Mosaic imprint. The single, described by the group as a song about the area we grew up in, the East End of London, crashed into the hit parade at number 39 this week after being played almost non-stop on the offshore pirate Radio Caroline. In other words, that was the radio station that in, in that day you needed to be on. In the narrow hallway, a young man with straw blonde hair blue and white striped scarf and a brown leather and brown leather sandals sits tight he is about to be zoomed into space bolt upright arms folded foot tapping like a jackhammer he appears anxious like a school leaver awaiting examination results in the corner opposite a young temp in a mad patterned sea green mini taps away at one of the new memo typewriters <laughs> cornelia is employed to make tea pretend she can type and be decorative, remembering this is another era, kids. In the other corner, Sandra, or Sand, as she is known at JCE, the management company, is nonchalantly repinking her nails. Bit like the dentist, isn't it? She says. The boy looks up. Had a cup of tea? Oh, yeah, 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 thanks, I have. Well, would you like another? Both girls have been briefed to take good care of the potential new client. I'm all right at the minute, thanks. The boy uncrossed his legs and refolded his scarf. This is London, and London is swinging or, or swinging, depending on which way you look at it. So that's his, uh, his first interview, and I'll read you the, the next half of that little thing. This is 35 years later. He had a five-year career from 65 till 70 and then disappeared off the face of the earth, but was then rediscovered by a local paper in a small village in the countryside. 
um, as a grower of cabbages, where he then started to win prizes in an agricultural uh, shows and started to export cabbages to such extent that he was making more money from exporting cabbages, millions and millions and millions and millions of cabbages than he ever had made from pop music. So you've got success in a sort of a crazy unglamorous way. The second time we can look at, we look at the whole story again, but the problem is it takes 600 pages for me to retell that story. So this is the second part of the start of the second part. Trowin House, Porth Creek, Saturday, 27th of August, 2006. I wonder if I could speak to Mr. Knightley, please. There's somebody on the phone, basically. Who is this? It's Neil, Neil Winters. Oh, this is Mr. Knightley. Oh, hello, John. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to disturb you, and I hope I'm not disturbing you at a bad time. But what it is, I saw this article about you in the local paper yesterday. Yeah, about your canna plants and your cabbages. Uh, yeah. Thing is, I'm actually a bit of a fan of yours from way back. Click. Phone goes down. John Knightley replaced, replaced the receiver, receiver as he had done so many times over the years, slowly and blankly. Then he went back to repotting and draining his collection of Dorothy Ansis Belafit Dorius, eagerly and legally Im imported from the Kirsten Bosch National Botanical Garden in Cape Town, Southern Africa. Thousands of small green shoots were waiting to be done and John couldn't wait to do them. The contraband packed into the heaving shelves of his ever-expanding greenhouse encampment and his just installed e-plasmic Sun Lounge extension, where his most expansive and treasured Aborealis expirus were housed. Do not touch foliage without gloves, causes burning irritation to the skin. So he's gone from a glamorous world into this crazy thing of plants, but he's still making stuff. He's still <laughs> creative. And that is the story of the book. That's just page, two pages, random pages out of it. And I, I, think, I think that like, our, our students could, <laughs> they'd learn a lot from reading it, I think, because as you say, it doesn't matter what you do, so long as you're being, I think everything that you do, you know, you can be creative without being an artist, basically. Yeah, and, um... absolutely. It doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you're in. You know, I, I, I managed to switch from music, about 20 years in music, because before, um, before I, I met Henry, you know, I'd been doing music since I was about four because I was in lots of choirs. At one time I was in 13 choirs. That's, that's, uh, that's how we used to get into music, I think, through the school yeah. choirs, yeah? Was, you know, <laughs> the only reason was that there was a piano there. So when they yeah. all went after the choir practice, we didn't have a piano. And I wanted to hit that piano. So I could sit there for about 15 minutes until somebody would come to check that everyone would gone and I could play the piano. So it was choirs. And um, I was making money as well. So we, we did about three or four weddings on a Saturday <laughs> and you get five pounds each. So yeah. I'm making 20 pounds yeah. when I'm about 10 years old. Yeah. This is crazy. Yeah, singing but, in the church choir at a wedding. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, yeah so in my mind, you know, <laughs> money, you know. It, it, was quite, it was quite a lot of money, I seem to remember at the time as well. Henry, <laughs> did you? Did, Me too. You, no, I was, a chorus, I was head chorister <laughs> at my church. Really? <laughs> Have you got something in common then? 
<laughs> they were all nice boys. It's no good. <laughs> we 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 had a very good music teacher who used to introduce us to things like Benjamin Britten, and we we did the we did the. I was in the Little Sweep, you know, this opera for children yeah, yeah. set in Norfolk that Benjamin yeah, yeah. made about what it's like to be go up chimneys, you know, be forced up chimneys. Uh, when you know it was, it was a cruel slavery kind of slavery we did Noah's floods you know and we, we used to do these in the school hall and then I remember we did um, I remember um, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Rice coming in to hear one of the first performances of Joseph that, that we did and you know the mute just to, just for our younger students there was no such thing as photocopy machines we had music was which was their manuscript Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's manuscript for Joseph that was photostatted and it smelt a smelt of chemicals. So I'd, I'd hold these huge full steps of music. Um, you know, our English teacher played um, uh, the Pharaoh. He was really cool. And and and, and we used to have a, a weekly school disco, which introduced me to a lot of kind of pop music. Our DJ, believe it or not, was a certain Pete Tong. <laughs> well, Pete Tong, Pete Tong good, was in the year below me at my school. <laughs> and he used to do the school disco. And I remember thinking at the time he was really serious about the way he did it. <laughs> and he hasn't changed. <laughs> oh my God. So it's funny the way one comes across all of these different people who, who kind of become quite influential, really. Um, so we're all in the choirs. I was going to come back to art. And, you know, we were talking about the difficulties of knowing anything about the visual arts unless you were lucky enough to you know be in central London be able to go to galleries my experience I don't know about yours it was probably very different my experience because I lived in the Thames estuary at a place called Gravesend <laughs> um, which is basically it's like what it sounds like and um, so I used to only get into town on the train you know when I could afford it to go to galleries and things but um, I would go I remember going to the Serpentine and seeing a decoot this was exhibition of this guy called de Kooning and I, I remember feeling really out of it and very aware that I wasn't the right kind of person to be looking at this difficult art and it it was I remember certainly through the 80s until we get to the 90s that contemporary art seemed quite snobby and exclusive and difficult to understand and then something I don't know whether the two of you could maybe pick up the reins on that maybe Henry could talk about you know, what was happening in the visual arts from the 70s, 80s, and then what happened in the 90s leading to the new millennium? Maybe Henry could start on that, you know, with art. <laughs> right. Uh, it's a lot, it's okay. a big story. Okay. So it's a big question. Hmm. Uh, Todd, you're going to have to help me out here, but uh, I, uh, there's two things I would say by way of introduction. You've just reminded me, David, that when I was a kid, in um, uh, in the Manchester area, where I lived, was a, a place called Salford, which was a very, very industrial, working class, poor area. Mm. And there was only one art gallery in the city, mm. a city of like 300,000 people. There was one art gallery, okay? Mm which I never went to <laughs> when I was a kid, right? Because, you know, street kids, I was a street kid, didn't go to art galleries, right? Mm -hmm. But I lived in the street mm -hmm. because that's what you did. Mm -hmm. You just ran with the, the pack. Mm -hmm. But where I lived in a, a really poor part of the city of Salford, in the 
streets, there was a guy who came and set up with a little stool and an easel and paints, and he had a little dog. And we thought it was really weird. <laughs> Just right, we, we used to go out and throw stones at him and, you know, berate him. And eventually he was saying, would you like a cup of tea? He had a little flask of tea. Would you like a sandwich? And we got to know him. We said, what is your name? And he said, my name is Lawrence. So we called him Mr. Lawrence. <laughs> it was only L.S. Lowry. <laughs> right? wow. Painting the streets that, that, that were all run down and dilapidated. And all, you, you know. So we looked at him, I looked at his, what he was doing. And he was like, I thought, well, that's art. These, these matchstick people, right? <laughs> and then a couple of years later, when I went to top, my secondary school, which was a grammar school, we got taken to this Salford Museum, right? The only one. And the only works they had there were L.S. Lowry's. Yeah, and this was before L.S. Lowry was, was recognized by anybody, okay? <laughs> so, and I, so I thought, in my answer to what you're saying is, I thought up until the kind of, you know, my university years, my college years, that modern art or contemporary art, whatever, was all about matchsticks. <laughs> I thought oh, that's what everyone must be doing. I think we've all got stories like that. I, I also, you know, I, I didn't know what, what was going on at all. I mean, I, 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 you asked about what was the first things that you saw in your, uh, when you mm. uh, asked us what to bring. I think this is the first magazine that I, that I bought, which was about art or about contemporary art, Art Scribe. Oh. Wow. Art Scribe, 1986. Um, it was edited by Matthew Collings, who um, was always a very important person for me on the visual arts. And he had a Channel 4 series. You both probably remember it. This is Modern do, Art, yeah. which Matt um, presented and wrote. Um, and this is, a, this is a, almost, uh, you can see, it's really very much like a fanzine. Mm. but it you it, it's like a it's not like sniffing glue because i know what intimately what that looks like <laughs> but it has the same um kind of thing it, it is very kind of you know chucked together yeah. uh, what's interesting reading through it is that you've got a lot of what we would now see as as probably quite straight things Mm. And but but still, you know, uh, so you know, Momart was still was still around <laughs> in 1986. So anyway, and, and on the uh, and the same at the same day, I think I bought this. I went to some kind of art. It, there were no art fairs in 1986, of course, mm -hmm. but I went to something which might have been a Tate um, Britain because there was no Tate Modern Tate Britain fundraiser, and I bought this Studio International. Oh wow. Um, and I bought 20 of them in fact this is one of them uh, which is has got Patrick Heron on the front yeah. and that introduced me to Patrick Heron and the idea of it's very very nicely designed and the idea of um those those kind of color field uh, you might you might call them works with different things it's interesting because even then so they had the glossy pages on Studio International and they used to have these brown pages this is brown thick paper which had all the listings and and the the sort of more serious 
um, stuff was in there. There's some more Heron paintings, which would have been, he was with Waddington, so he was very lucky because Waddington was a super important, um, um, super important gallery. And I, yeah, when I first started to make money through music, which was not in the 70s, I had to wait quite a long time. It was in the 80s. First place I went, went to to buy anything was Waddington Gallery and I bought a, a, some Patrick Heron paintings. Um, I'd also been to buy this. I don't know if you ever saw any of these studio magazine, which is, this is, there was two of them. There was an art one and there was a music one. This is an art one. You can see what they, it's interesting to see what's on the back because they're the ads. Very often the adverts tell you a lot more about the culture, but I like this because this is very bold. I like the way that they've taken the, the, the font is too big for the, for the thing and it goes off the sides and it was looking at things like that that made me think very carefully about what record sleeves was what should be like hmm. because in 1981 I, I started a record label which went through rough trade called compact organization and we looked through art magazines to try and figure out what our um what our sleeves would be like um at the same time or the week before I bought this magazine which is High Fidelity the mm -hmm. American music magazine which is about gear and I also bought this one um, which was an old one that I wanted to get Rave mm -hmm. if anybody has ever seen Rave magazine I think it was the best of the 1960s um, late you know late, late swing in London and to finish off uh, what I started to read more when when I was at the gallery so that the 15 years that that was on it was would it be something like this after all which would have told me quite a lot about things that I didn't know and that I should have known about and there was a lot more as you can see there's a lot more text than there is images so you need to be in there sitting on the bus sitting on the tube you need to go through these kind of magazines and you have to read them you have to read them properly because you're running an art gallery and an art business mm -hmm. and you mustn't have a situation where somebody mentions an artist to you that you've never heard of yeah because that's yeah. disgraceful that's something think, we all that's a problem we all have <laughs> yeah um, i'm just thinking do you think that that's changed now i i wonder whether our our students now do read these kind of critical art magazines or whether they even exist um I don't think they read them. Yeah, uh, and I mean, I, I, I think that it's really changed, doesn't it? And I, I think people get their ideas now by so through social media, they will hear that there's a happening on in a gallery, and they will definitely go to the opening nights um, and see the see the new shows. And I, you know, I know that my many of my students do spend a lot of time going around the galleries in London and learning that way. But yeah. I think we often have this discussion about art critics that used to be so important and so influential for contemporary artists and whether they you know be a hit or not and i'm not certain that's really true anymore henry do you have any ideas about art critics it's the same as music you know the music the way that the critic works with music and new releases and new acts and new bands is quite different to what it used to be it's more like they work in a sort of an a and r role they discover something everybody is yeah. trying to discover something they've all moved into a and r rather than say isn't this interesting yes that should really be the remit for all journalists i think 
isn't this interesting? Is it not? It shouldn't be. It's new. It's groovy. They're saying the right things. They've got the right political attitude. That yes. doesn't mean anything. It's just, isn't that interesting? I mean, we used to, you know, we used to try and find something that was, you know, would, would shock somebody or, you know, this is William Burroughs. This is our invitation. There's nothing on it except William, William and his rifle. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and, and those were those carded. That's quite interesting. So I remember at Rifle Maker, you used to be quite retro in, in your publicity and your marketing, where most yeah. people now would be just only thinking about social media, partly because it's free. And you were still printing these very old fashioned invitations and delivering them, you know, by hand. And they had these kind of curved corners, which made them different. That's right. They all had curved corners. And we some, as I say, very often we would send something out which didn't have anything to about Rifle Maker on it at all. Yeah, we weren't trying to persuade them to come to the gallery. We were trying to make them think, what's that? That's interesting. <laughs> Just that, you know, we didn't kind of go, oh, you must come. We didn't phone everyone up and say, oh, you must come on Monday. It's going to be wonderful. And afterwards we're going to the, you know, the so-and-so bar and this is the, no, we kind of went, you know, look, hey, did you get a thing with a pig in a car <laughs> in the post? Yes, I did. Just yeah, different. I that was. That was from us. <laughs> it's unusual. And Henry, you, you, in your work with our artists, you know, um, help supporting, helping artists out of, out of problems they might be having, do you notice any changes in the problems that uh, and solutions that artists now have that maybe they did or didn't have, say, when you first started working with them? I think that um, that's an interesting question. I, I don't, I suppose there is a common thread that has stayed with me from my originally working with um, young unknown artists, just like I did help trying to help Tot in the 70s. Later on, it was the same kind of thing, but from a legal and business point of view, as you would say, from an art business viewpoint, yeah. I, you know, to help the young unknowns, okay? And, and that's what I want, and the thread from there, from the mids or late 70s, right through to today, I would say, is that there are millions and millions of artists, I mean, you may disagree, Todd, uh, I'll advance this and see what you think. There are millions and millions of artists around the world, because hey, with social media, it's the world, not your neighborhood, not your city, not your town, it's the world. Millions and millions of artists create, they make work. Mm. Only a few hundred of them will ever sell anything. So it's a buyer's market. And the artists that I've worked with over the years, of the years I've been consistently doing it, are in a weak, weak, weak bargaining position in relation to the art industry. Mm. And the, the common feature of it that's always stayed with me and about me trying to help those people, those people is that because they have no bargaining power, they cannot insist in any way that anyone doing a deal with them, whether it be buying a piece of work 
or taught being represented by a gallery or giving a show or whatever it may be they need, they can never force whoever is giving whatever it is to them, force them to write anything down. No. The big, big, big problem that's always stayed through from then in the 70s right through to today, David, all around the world is nothing, nothing is put into writing at the request of the artist. Some people on the other side of transactions with artists will put things into writing and will want things nailed down, particularly if it's kind of government money or a public institution or wherever it may be, they'll want to do it. But in the private sector, it's very rare for the artist to be offered, hey, we want to represent you, here's the deal. Hmm. Or if they commissioned a work, if it's a private commission, well, let's, it would like, don't you trust me? <laughs> You know, as again, so the the greatest the, the the greatest problem, if you like, area which kind of connects with my kind of legal and business expertise is the absence. If I had a dollar for every time a, an artist client has contacted me and said, "Henry, I wonder if you can help me. I've got nothing in writing, but mm. if I had a dollar for every time that was said." I'd be a millionaire. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> it's difficult. What the gallery can do is, uh, I think what happens generally at the moment, particularly, and we had it so many times as well, is that most of the artists, uh, if there's a thousand artists, every one of them except 20 will find it very, very difficult to get a gallery and to find it very difficult to sell works by themselves, from themselves. And they'll also find it more difficult. The most difficult thing is the mental power to continue. This is the most important thing. So having a gallery or whatever, this is all rubbish. This is what we used to say to the artists all the time, and I still do, is that, you know, the, the power is within you. You know, I mean, they're obviously, they're good or they're no good. And if you don't think they're very good, it might be kind of good. So what else do you do? What else do you like doing? Is there something that are you doing it because you can't not do it? You know, you have to wake up in the morning and make a painting or make a sculpture or make a film or whatever. Or are you doing it because it's like a groovy thing to do when you're 18 or 21? Or what, what are you actually doing it for? You know, have a think about it and have a think about how much personal pleasure it gives you when you complete something as opposed to when somebody tells you they like it because when they tell you they like it it doesn't mean anything forget it it's not important because most of the artists that you love and that I love nobody ever liked it and they died you know um, or they had to wait till they were 65 you know I remember I, uh, Paula Rago who, re who recently died had her, her studio around the corner from me in, in uh, Kentish Town for a while and we used to share a cab sometimes I'd see her on the the street getting the cab and she said to me uh, yeah, I don't know if it's true or not but she said to me that she never had much happening until she was 50 which is probably right you know mm -hmm. one of the great artists basically one of the great British artists uh, that, or Portuguese artists um, that we know about anyway but yeah the, the, the most important thing is you know that you either want to do that thing or you don't mm -hmm. I don't think apart from eating and having money to eat I don't think it's important 
to the the genius whether anybody likes it or not it really I really don't you know I know a lot of artists that I've supported and bought works from that nothing is ever going to happen to them nothing's going to happen I'm not bothered I don't care I've got something that I think is special on my wall or in a case or whatever you know or I thought they were interesting characters and I thought I would support that I've also um, come across over the years particularly in the music business you a lot of um, people who become successful in the music business and, and remembering as we all realize I'm sure that's usually short-lived not, not many people have a career beyond two years that's what the statistics say mm. um, if you're lucky somebody else will record your songs five years later or ten years later or somebody will put them in a commercial in a fashion commercial I've kind of had those things as well and they are very helpful to give you money but they don't really do much else because the thing that you worked so hard on is kind of now taken on a, another thing it's on the car commercial kind of thing so I think it's very very difficult and the most important thing is the state of mind the mental state of mind of the creator like in anything else and we very much saw our uh, sort of mission which was rifle maker that's really what it was it was a sort of a really crazy mission to we you know to have things on there that we thought if we thought uh, it was good we'd put it on we said we thought we must get away from this mental state of will anyone buy it you know the most important thing is that we've done something and it's interesting and if we lose some money on it it doesn't really matter we'll make it up on the next one or something or we'll add uh, make the prices more on the next one stuff like that but it was you know you mustn't base everything on commerce you mustn't it's a killer it kills everything you know you've got to base it on this this love coming, just just coming back to henry's point um about you know artists saying they've got nothing in writing i think quite a lot of the gallerists that one speaks to are kind of in a similar situation. You know, I mean, you, Top, well, Top knows all the statistics about how many contemporary art galleries start up and then have to fold. Now, yeah. some, some of the dealers I know are very wealthy. They've got a lot of money anyway, and they've, or they've made it somewhere else, and they, they've got a lot of capital. And in that case, obviously, there's a strong argument that they shouldn't be exploiting artists by not signing contracts with them but i think a lot of the time we we know this about the art world it's a it's an it's a it lacks transparency it lacks the usual manners and regulations of other businesses and i think that this this affects both can affect both dealers gallerists and artists at the same time so yeah. so i'm just putting out there to henry that I, i'm not certain it's always on the side of the of the artists, I think it no, can no, be. No, I, I wasn't. Uh, forgive me if I've conveyed that wrong. Oh, no, no, because I think I think most of us would agree with have, you. Yeah. They have no bargaining power yeah. to yeah. insist. Yeah, that's all I was saying. Yeah, no, I, un I understand that. And I, 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 for example, was working with an artist recently, and um, and 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 they, I'm not naming any names, but they they wanted to give me a work of art, uh, uh to thank me for the introduction that they thought had really helped them, you know, to bring in punters and buy their work uh, and but then when it came to it they they'd never really worked with the kind of gallerist before and suddenly they said to me oh I'm not allowed to do it unless it goes through the gallery <laughs> you know yeah. so it had to yeah. become official and you know and uh and 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 and, and it, it couldn't the artist was not allowed to do this under their own steam and just give it as a gift to a friend as it were I think the other just 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 picking up from what uh, Chots so powerfully and clearly explained. I just want to pick up and connect with that, Tot, in, in the sense that it seems to me, for example, 
that uh, anyone who knows me knows that I will cite this artist from Duchamp a hundred years ago, making work that was intended to be anti-retinal, as we know, and, and appealing through the medium of the mind, not necessarily through the eye, which, which obviously influenced and, and, and taught. He died with no marketplace at all and was not interested in selling and trading in the industry. He was interested in making the work, which is the, I think he's, he's my hero in that sense. But his influence, which wasn't really very powerful as wide as it is today, uh, by the time he died in 68, was so influential on artists of my generation and right through to today, where artists are more about making work that has to connect with what you were saying before, uh, 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 the originality of the shop, of the new so-called, you know, whatever. And it, it, it's, a, it, it's more, what is often called generative in the sense that creativity, as, as many of the artists that I've worked with say, is, is not about the making of the work, that's the making of work in the raw state. The true creativity happens when the spectator engages with the work in the way that you taught, I've just described, and something happens. Yeah. And that's creativity. Yeah, that's, that's artistic right. and true creativity. Yeah. And that's something that I think a lot of the contemporary artists who are you know, alive today or whatever it may be, are more interested in doing, not making something for the purposes of selling and getting rich, but they're making something that they want to connect with some kind of audience or spectator. And that has really, David, going back to what you were saying, has changed in the decades that I've been working with artists, you know, which started to happen during the 70s, where I started to be a go-to art lawyer by artists coming to me saying, we want to do this, like performance art started to pick up in the 70s, where artists wanted to do performative works, which are not about making objects and selling anything. No. I liked that period. <laughs> yeah, it was a great period. And I, I was I was pleased and proud to be happily uh, 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 to be involved with artists saying, can you help us to create some kind of group, some kind of association, some so that we can come together legally and yeah. kind of, you know, the, the squat in a building or you know, occupy a wharf down on the river or whatever. And all that activity top that happened between yeah. Tower Bridge and Greenwich during the 70s and the 80s, yeah. I was heavily involved in that and was proud to be to help the artists to have the space to make the work for a space that they couldn't afford or to be performative in. Yeah. And that led to a big shift, David, to go back to what you're saying, in my view, of the kind of work that was being produced and is now being produced. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, I think we'd all agree that there are two types of artists. There are artists that, I know there, there are a lot of artists that 
don't really need to sell works because they make their money from you know they, they're given grants from the arts council and a part of exhibitions and you know to a certain extent our taxes are paying for those artists and in many ways those are the less they're they're, they're usually the less commercial artists and I the, the the big thing that has happened in my experience from the 90s onwards is you know you have to say it has to you know the YBAs are artists who it seems to me somehow managed to find a a new model of creating art that uh that was both commercial and yet good art at the same time and and then with the open of Tate Modern and the sudden you know I think all of these things came together I think with the Blair government whatever we think of him it yeah, was this kind they, of youth they, called Britannia they the YBAs your Hearst, the Emmings, the Turks, all, all those people are the exception. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. But don't take that, I don't take that as being the norm. The no, norm is yeah. most artists have to have a day job Absolutely. doing something else in order to fund their yeah. art. Yeah. They don't get grants from the Arts Council or whatever it may no, be. No, I, I, I wasn't do, saying that a lot do. But mostly, yeah. they're on their own, yeah. aren't they, Tom? They're you, on their own do you and think they need help. Of, do you think one of the problems is that we, we have too many places in art studio, arts colleges, and that we're creating, we're educating too many people who, giving them the hope that they were going to be a, a famous artist and become wealthy through their art? Do you think we create too many art students? Some, some have argued that. Yeah, I think that's probably true it must be the same of architects colleges and it must be the same yeah. of writing courses and blah yeah. blah you know. um it's interesting to me that i have always kind of met so well certainly on the visual arts side i've met a lot of artists who could write for example you'd ask them to write their press i always ask the artist to write their own press release mm -hmm. and then we try and give it to some someone to glam it up a bit but some of them they they could really write yep. in the sense that they knew what they were about they could describe what they made which a lot of people can't and sometimes you shouldn't attempt to do that in a press release anyway but some of them just couldn't and then we, we would sort of ask them all, you know, we try and sort of figure out the artists that we represented in, in a way and say, you know, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? You know? mm. Or if this all goes wrong next week, mm. what are you going to do? What, what else? Is there something else that makes you as happy or as sad as making art? And, and you know, many people do very often have that one other thing so mm. sometimes we would sort of skip to that and say okay well that's very interesting we've never heard that one before and we, we had a basement uh, underneath the rifle maker where we could have a performance space and they just go down there we're given it for, for a week or two mm. weeks or whatever and sort of see if we could get something else out of them something else to happen that maybe waddington's weren't going to do for for their artists or their waddington's mm did a lot for a lot of incredible artists um so yeah I, I think it's i think it's very 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 weird i think that it it's so hard for the artists themselves that i could never understand what it is like i don't know what it was like i think it was much 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 more difficult i think rifle maker as a galley was lucky very very lucky incredibly lucky because we had well, we had great artists number one that we managed to find and we managed to persuade to stay with us which is very difficult because when when you've had two great shows then all the other galleries are coming in, coming in. and that happened as well and the artist might go and they might stay 
Mm. And uh, if they might go, they might be more successful with them or they might be less successful. We had a few that really uh, weren't so successful as the as the pathway they were on mm. uh, in one of them that we actually picked up three years down the line and tried to start again because we liked the work so much but you've got all this tension of people's personalities galleries are very bullish mm. and they kind of go no you know if you if you're gonna put that in that show and that doesn't come through our gallery then i'm really really sorry but blah yeah. blah blah uh, i would have to think about that and virginia as well we'd sort of think is it good for us for to be in that thing if it is good for us in terms of the artist career what we can then do then great if it's going to sort of uh, uh, put some sort of i don't know stain in it somehow let's not do it because we don't like the show we don't like the the gallery's um image and all that there's all that stuff you know all the galleries have got the sort of their their own images to worry about yeah. So much, so many problems that the artists have to contend with. You have to be very, very sympathetic with with the artists, particularly the ones that you have taken on. You know, you have to explain to them as well. You know, we're taking you on. Stay with us. You and know. you, you do hear a lot about a lot of struggling artists who actually are having severe mental health problems. I'm sure yeah. it's always been that way. And quite often, the the fact that they're a good artist. I mean, thinking of people, some of your artists taught. I know. One of them had bipolar and, you know, that was that made them incredibly creative and yet fit to depression as well. And we've seen that in the rock in the rock music industry at the same time. Um, yeah. I, I'm aware of the time now, guys. So I, think, I, I, I don't know. We, we It was quite different from what I perceived this was going to be. But I think it's <laughs> I think just what you and Henry have been saying about I think that that last 20 minutes or so about about the status of artists today. I mean, we some of some of our students, as you probably know, they they went to fine art college and wanted to yeah. had this idea of being an artist or a photographer and making money out of that. And one of the reasons they come to study art business is to is because they can find another career which is still related to what they do. Quite yeah. increasing numbers of them, I I notice when I talk to them, um, they say, "Oh, do you want to look at some of my art on or my." Instagram, you know, they often have two Instagram pages, one social, one about their artistic stuff. And I say to them, are you, are you making any money out of this? They say, yeah, quite a lot. And they're quite surprised. So I think that there's probably a more of those people who they might have to compromise a little bit with the kind of art they're making, which yeah. kind of clashes with what we were saying earlier, that they should be doing what they really want to do rather than what they think the world wants. But so, you know, I think I think increasingly I am finding that people are making a little bit of money, maybe to fund their student fees, uh, at least. You know, So that's happening. And um, I was going to ask you both what do you think is going to happen in the next five years? But I think I've already asked Todd that question and people should listen to the podcast I did with Todd before, because he speaks about to a certain extent, he speaks about what he thinks is going to happen with art in the future. But I think that that story needs to be picked up in a later episode. And um Henry, we're going to have another episode anyway, so I'll probably ask you that question um, when we when we record your part two. I'll be listening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to finish by um, um, what I'm going to do this time is uh, those of you who listen regularly to the podcast, the intro and the outro music is actually from one of Tot's uh, tracks off his off his album uh, Frisbee, and. Um, I'm going to end this session by actually playing the whole of that track <laughs> because I some of you have said to me, oh, you know, and, and you can see in the credits how you get to the album. You can hear it on Spotify uh, and so on if you want. But you'll hear Baby, I Miss the Internet. <laughs>
I think that's right, isn't it? I always get the title wrong. Um, Maybe on the internet. Yeah, it's 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 about Donald Trump. About Donald Trump, which is which is fascinating. But I think it's also quite interesting about it. Kind of brings us to the end of the story that we've been telling. Really, that we didn't yeah. have the internet <laughs> when we yeah. were your yeah. age, and it led to a lot of a lot of it was kind of golden age and it was good in some ways but it was a slower world obviously but I, I think the internet is a, it does enable people to to educate themselves it's so long as they have access to the internet and I know you know there are not not everyone does and there are parts of the world that still don't have wi-fi and so on and and, and computers but I, I I'm quite hopeful that this might level the playing field a bit in terms of what is possible for people to do in that art world so you know who knows yeah. the way that will go i think um i think it will i just can i just sort of precede it just as just yeah. for 10 seconds so that it yeah. actually makes sense for the listener yeah. um, because uh, maybe i miss the internet is a rather abstract thought perhaps um I was listening to Donald Trump in the middle of the night on some news uh, cast um, before he was uh, when he was running the first time. And he had been making some really, really uh, bad, nasty slagging off content, uh, uh, comments about the content of the Internet, what it said about him. And the lady who was interviewing him, who was one of the, the most important journalists on CBS or whatever, said to him, Mr. Trump, you have been um, very kind of anti-internet. You've said quite a lot of things about the internet and you've been writing some very, very harsh comments uh, about, you know, you know people, your, your um, opposition on the internet. What are you gonna do when those comments come back at you and people start to sort of bite back and Trump just literally kind of just went take it down <laughs> so all he said take it down and she said uh you're gonna you're gonna take the comments down no take the internet down <laughs> and that was it and I thought wow and this this sentence came to me baby I miss the internet because I thought if he did that three days after he was elected I thought, what would it be like? And then I was thinking about his name. And I thought, like, if I write the song, how am I going to do it? I can't write it about Donald Trump because he's got such a weird, strange name. You can't rhyme. You know, so that's why the first two lines when people hear it are um, being hearing about you for a long, long time, which we had. We'd heard about him for 30 years before he was president. You know, been hearing about you for a long, long time. Whenever I hear your name, I don't hear no rhyme. <laughs> And that, so was that, before, that, that was before the internet as well. It was, <laughs> yeah, great. that's the slide into the song. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Tot and Henry, for being you, part of this discussion today. And I hope the listeners find it uh, amusing, entertaining, and I think informative to hear from these people who've been in that art world, both musical and artistic, for, for several decades. It's always good to hear your, your wisdom. And, well, it was a pleasure, and, and, and lovely to see you both. Lovely to see you, Henry, as well. I haven't seen you for a while. And you talk, yeah, thanks, David. Good to put us both together, thank you. Yeah, thanks very much, David. Been hearing about you for a long, long time. Whenever I hear your name, I don't hear no rhyme. I should be sitting, writing songs for you. Give him something so he can sing along
Such a long 